Look at the adjective. Play. Now is the franchise going to take the Viagra? Oh, going to put the butts in the seat. Hello there, wrestling fans, and welcome to episode number 79 of Because WCW, the podcast where the big boys play. My name is the Twisted Genius, Dean Ayers, and I am joined as ever by my co-host, Sports journalist Liam Hap, good evening to you. Liam, how are you doing in lockdown number two? How am I doing? How am I doing? I'm cold, Dean. It's very, very cold. I don't like it. I don't want it to be cold. I don't like it anymore. Bring back the summer. I don't like it. I think the only way it could be colder is if I was unfortunate enough to live somewhere really, really cold like Canada. That That is cold. Yeah, yeah. I, I hear they have uh, they have slow drifts and moose and things like that. Yes, absolutely. And you're you're really no selling my attempt to segue into where this episode is going, but aren't you? I was going to say, don't take my word for it, because <laughs> we have with us today a special guest and a man who can tell us firsthand just how cold it is in Canada. Uh, we, we venture over to the famous wrestling city of Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada, home of, of course, the site of where Bret Hart beat Ric Flair for the WWF title all those years ago. 92? 92, yes. And uh, I would like to welcome to Because WCW the wrestling writer and blogger Scott Keith. Good, it's good afternoon over there in Canada. Good afternoon to you, Scott. It is indeed the afternoon over here. Absolutely. How are you doing? Uh, well, I'm. Uh, I managed to dig out the back of my garage from the four feet of snow that had accumulated. We uh, we actually got hit with a record blizzard over the, the last couple of days, so it's been quite an adventure here. E. And uh, and it is cold, as as you say. I don't know if you what what temperature system you work on over there across the pond, but it is currently uh, minus eighteen degrees Celsius in in Saskatoon here right now. So it is. Uh, it is not not a pleasant summer day, that is for sure. Well, yeah, we we work on Celsius, and and that just seems insanely cold. Minus eighteen, man. Yeah, well, I think I think we're about plus twelve at the moment. We're exceptionally mild here, so there you go. And then you, you know you're on a British podcast, Scott, because the first thing we do we don't talk about wrestling. No, we talk about the weather. And we moan about well, the weather more specifically. <laughs> yeah, that's. <laughs> That's mostly the way it is in Canada as well, honestly. Nice. Fair enough. So um, for those, any, anyone who's uh, listening to this who may not be familiar with uh, with your work, just give us a, a bit of a by me, way of introduction, just a, what, what uh, your wrestling journey has been like so far. Oh, boy. Well, I've, uh, I'm, of course, currently the uh, owner and proprietor of blogofdoom.com, uh, where I do daily reviews on things from WWE Network and whatever kind of piques my fancy. Uh, I'm also currently writing for the new Inside the Ropes magazine, which is available uh, on newsstands in the UK. Uh-huh. With, uh, uh-huh. Yes. with uh, Finley Martin, who was on with, uh, one of these with, very recently. And 
several other luminaries of the wrestling business. You betcha, yeah, with with Finn Martin and uh, the former James Ryder, now going by Dante Richardson, uh, for example. So, yes, and some good names working uh, on, on that magazine. So that's been quite a fun journey that I've been on so far. Uh, I was with uh, the Sporting News up until uh, last year. I'd, I'd been with them for quite a few years, so that was also a fun experience to be on. And, uh, you know, just all over the Internet for, God, the last uh, almost 30 years now, it feels like. Well, yeah, we we were uh, we were talking um, before before we went on air uh, and uh, over over Twitter Messenger that you um, you and I seem to have a, a, a similar uh, early start to our, our internet wrestling journeys with the uh, the RSPW Rexport Pro Wrestling Group. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, quite the the quite the thing for me, uh, which I discovered when I was in university taking. Uh, computing science courses back in 1992 back was when that started out and uh, unfortunately I discovered that uh, most of my time seemed to be better spent accessing you know the the wrestling news groups in the computer department rather than actually doing my computer work so <laughs> kind of kind of put a stop to my uh, kind of put a stop to my university education uh, a little bit in, in that way unfortunately but uh, I was out of money anyway so it wasn't going to work out but uh you know, so there was a silver lining to it, I guess. But yeah, and, yes. and for for those people listening who uh, who may not be aware of the the I guess the infancy of uh, of the internet, because yeah, we we have we have young whippersnappers like young Liam here who who may not uh, be be around at that time. But I mean, um, I mean, my my memories of RSPW Rexport Pro Wrestling, as I said, and it was a, a message board, sort of like a I guess like a forums are now, and um. For me, it was when I was uh, working as a ring announcer for Hammerlock Wrestling in um, in England in the mid '90s, and I would I would MC the shows and I would I would then post reports and results up of uh, of um, of those shows. We had uh, it was a, well, it was the place where uh, the likes of uh, Doug Williams, Jody Fleiss, Johnny Storm, um, Nikita, who was uh, Katie Lee and Winter in, in America, several people got their got their starts, and it was yeah, it's the first real sort of smart wrestling group that I discovered. Yeah, smart can be kind of a stretch sometimes with, with that group, but uh, <laughs> but I mean, you know, at the at the time it was a very the internet was a very different place. Uh, my wife yeah. always makes fun of me because she uh, she says that I should you know my blog should be called Dear Internet with no pictures since that's what it was like back when I first started out. <laughs> She, you know, blows her mind. It's like, you know, what, what is he, what even is the point if, you know, you're going on there and it's just text, right? You know, so. And uh, now obviously we are, we are because WCW. So um, that leads me to ask you, you know, where, where did your, uh, your working relationship with the product of WCW begin? Oh gosh. Uh, I was, uh, I was a fan of Jim Crockett promotions all the way back into the eighties when I first became a fan for sure. I mean, like we had, uh, there was, uh, local stations that would pick up pick up speeds from over the border in the United States. Uh, so we get the the WWF show. Uh, we'd get uh, Jim Crockett's Worldwide Wrestling, for example. Be, that was a favorite of mine. So yeah, I was all the way back to I'd say yeah mid mid 1986. Uh, I was I was a follower of it and up up to the point of course when Ted Turner bought the company and it actually became WCW a couple of years later. So yeah, I've, I've been along for for a long time for that. And when did you start um, start writing about the product? Uh, yeah, so that would have been probably yeah 1992 when I first came on to RSPW. Uh, I, I did the, the pay-per-views for 
you know, kind of my first kind of really, really halting, terrible pay-per-view reviews for, for WWF and then uh, WCW shows as well. Um, pay-per-view actually was not uh, kind of a thing in Canada until 1992. The, 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 in, in Western Canada, for example, where I am, the very first pay-per-view that was available was WWF's SummerSlam 92. Uh, oh, and from, then, from London, yeah. England, yeah. From London, England, yes, you betcha. Um, and then after, after that, uh, yeah, then and then of course WCW was available as well. So I made the mistake of uh, talking my dad into ordering Halloween Havoc '92 for the for the <laughs> next one. So that was uh, so you know that's you win some, you lose some as as far as uh, as far as that goes. So yeah, that was that was my first first WCW pay per view that I was that, that I I'd say I wrote a review on. Um, I didn't start actually writing reviews as an ongoing thing until about uh, three years after that, like really, but I mean, but that was, that was kind of where it started was back then. So, so Liam, you realize that this man paid money to watch Rick Rude versus Masahiro Chono. Oh, well, many people unfortunately did. You'll remember when we recapped that particular pay-per-view on this very podcast, we had how can I forget? Yeah, we we had notable mixed martial arts journalist Dave Doyle on, and he bought a ticket to attend the show. The poor soul. So <laughs> there there are people out there who who did such a thing. It is it is very much a thing. One of the things I want to ask you, Scott, is uh, around this time ninety two, moving on to ninety three. Uh, the 93 WCW scene is, is one of the things I want to bring up because of all the reviews you would write. And I, when I first started to read your work, uh, I'm sure you've heard this from others, but it was it was always your your colourful style that always always drew me in. Uh, but in addition to recapping the events, you also wrote some features. And one of them I remember, and a lot of people who are familiar with your wrestling work will remember, uh, the Want of a Nail feature you wrote mm-hmm. on on the perils of 1993 WCW in particular because to a lot yeah. of us especially in retrospect you know WCW had so many bad things going for it and they, they caused so many ridiculous situations during their time but I, I went to talk back to you that, uh, about the how how 1993 in particular stood out to you as as ter- obviously we we didn't have things like Hogan and Warrior in 98 just yet but but how how yeah. bad was it writing that experience in 93 WCW to to want to write that piece <laughs> it was uh yeah it was quite the year the it, 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 and really the, the main problem wasn't even the talent that they had involved there i mean they had Sting and they had had the British Bulldog and uh, Sid Vicious and Vader so, I mean, they, they had a lot of good talent, but I mean, like management was just so incredibly inept at that point because uh, it was kind of kind of in that weird transition period between, you know, bringing in different bookers every year, like with, with Dusty Rhodes and and Kevin Sullivan and everybody like that. And Eric Bischoff kind of coming in and, and slowly taking over and putting his own own stamp on it. So it was just it, it kind of felt like a lot of it was them trying to be WWF uh, and making you know failing miserably at it like with the, the mini movies i guess is the the prime example that most people would come up with on there but uh but yeah like just trying to trying to try to be too many things to too many people at the same time and just failing miserably at all of them <laughs> uh, completely all the time is just i guess is the easiest way to easiest way to sum it up but it's uh, the crazy thing is that like the more i you know i go back and, and learn about this stuff from the old observers it's like the situation was even worse than and we knew as fans watching from the outside, it's like we thought it was really bad on the outside as it is. But then 
you go back and read about this stuff and you know they're losing millions of dollars and it's just it's chaos in the in the in the boardroom that trying to you know trying to run a wrestling company and it's it's really uh, it's really amazing that they survived long enough to get Hulk Hogan honestly. Because you see, over over on this side of the pond, '93 was a, it was a, a huge year, a seminal year for for American wrestling in Britain because um, they they'd had a, a brief, very small scale tour in late 1991, um, but then '93, March '93 to be precise, was when WCW came over. Um, and did a proper full-on arena tour of the UK because they had at this point signed Davy Boy Smith. Um, mm. Yeah, and we're talking like you know six, eight months after he's headlined Wembley Stadium for SummerSlam '92. Um, and they, yeah, I, I I remember I was at Wembley Arena, uh, which is literally next door to Wembley Stadium in um, in West London, and um, that was the show where Sting beat vader for a for the wcw world title which was absolutely unheard of unheard of on a house show and um and it was it was a tremendous card i mean you i I still remember to this day there was a great brawl between barry windham and dustin Rhodes, and and it was the first time i'd seen a wrestler bleeding and it was a really well received card then they they came back in October that year for a, a tour that was marketed as Halloween Havoc. And uh, we all thought that, that we were actually getting the pay-per-view until we realized that no, the pay-per-view was happening the week before in America. And this was just the tour named after it. And that was all, all going well until of course, uh, Sid and uh, Arn had their little um, set to in Blackburn, which threw everything up in the air. Yeah. So, and it's like, really, how do you, how do you make that kind of stuff up? You know, like how do you, it's like WCW couldn't even fail normally, you know, like they just, it was bad enough they were going to put the world title on Sid at the end of the year. And then like he goes and tries to murder somebody like that's just, <laughs> it's crazy. You can't even make this stuff up for both of them, you know? I think at that time they were probably, yeah, they, they weren't necessarily doing very well in, in the States. And, and this is something we've seen WWF do successfully as well, where it, it, they're not doing well domestically. They come to Europe because they they've got a good market over here. Yeah, and I mean it was an effective thing for WWF. Absolutely, like they there was some years like '92 uh, especially where, you know the where the market was struggling in the United States and they would go over and just do huge numbers, um, in the UK. So it was it was actually a smart tactic for uh, for WCW to try for for sure. Um, you know especially doing the title change to make things look special over there. And I mean if anything. They should have pushed British Bulldog even harder in the UK because that was kind of the whole point was to bring him over there and have him be the big star. And then, you know, they just they kind of had the one tour and then lost interest in him and, and fizzled out. And it's it just feels like he should, you know, it should have been like a, a much bigger deal than, than than he was over there. Like he was he could have been a long term star for them over there for quite a long time to come, I think. Yeah, because he he was like the passport into mainstream media for yeah. for wrestling, which you you never normally got and i don't know what i don't know what things are like in in canada but you know in in this country wrestling has always struggled to get any kind of mainstream media acceptance um i mean wwe in particular has always had a big foothold in canada uh just because they're always up here and wcw never was mm. like wcw ran you know total of like three shows in canada it feels like for the entirety of their existence um a lot recently though it, uh, WWE's mainstream foothold has really died off uh, as the product has kind of been 
been been dying off a lot. Like uh, AEW actually beats them in the ratings most weeks on TSN up here in Canada, for example. Oh, too. Wow. But yeah, I mean, oh yeah, no, yeah, for sure. It's uh, yeah, they things have kind of turned around badly for them just because WWE's kind of been ignoring Canada overall for about the past decade. It feels like now it's kind of you know coming back to bite them. But I mean, they don't run shows anymore really. Anyway, so it's I guess it's not a big deal from that regard. But uh, yeah, de- definitely it's you know it's you know years ago obviously during the Monday Night Wars you'd walk around and you know especially in Canada more than anything else you'd see you know people with you know the Austin three sixteen shirts and the NWO shirts and all that kind of stuff and it was it was just a normal thing like there wasn't really kind of the stigma surrounding uh, the sport that there was even in in the U S when it was really big. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, it's it, I guess it was kind of the same way in, in the UK for a lot of that stuff too. And what what was TV viewership for WCW like in Canada, given that the, they never really came here, came up there live? Um, they it took a long time for WCW to get any kind of TV foothold in Canada. Uh, most of WCW's TV was basically just Canadians watching American uh, TV programming. So like the WCW Nitro, for example, didn't air in Canada at all um, until. Oh, 1998 in full form on TSN. Uh, before that, there was a very chopped up version that would air, like like a severely edited version that would air on one of our one of the the, the networks that was up here. But it was at a very late time slot, and it wasn't like on Monday nights or anything like that. Right. So I mean, for yeah, so I mean, for Canadians, for example, during the Monday Night Wars, uh, you would get Raw live on TSN, the main sports channel in Canada. And then Nitro would air, it would be like Tuesday morning, basically. Like they would, so it would be, you know, it would be a lot of hour, hours long delayed. Although now these days it's kind of funny because there's there's now literally five TSN channels, just like BBC. <laughs> and oh, okay. uh, they, they, yeah, so they could air everything at the same time if it was, if it had been a situation where it was going on today. But uh, yeah, at, at the time though, yeah, it was, it was, it was a long delay between when Nitro would air and when we actually got to see it in Canada, unfortunately. So it just wasn't that. People just didn't didn't have that connection to WCW in Canada, even at the, the height of their their popularity. Uh, now you mentioned earlier about WCW barely making it through '93 and getting to the point where Hulk Hogan could be signed and and actually start to move the needle in the other direction. Uh, from what I recall from your work, you you weren't the biggest Hulk Hogan fan, were you, Scott? Especially at this time. <laughs> no, you could definitely say I was not a big Hulk Hogan fan. That is. That is a very true statement, yeah. Um, yeah, in fact, I, I kind of took a sabbatical from from WCW completely once Hogan came in in 1994 and got the title. Um, I actually I didn't watch any WCW events until World War III 95 was one where I finally decided to come back because he had lost the title and uh, things were looking up for the promotion. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, there was a lot of people within the company as well, though, who were also kind of making the same argument um, just because... Again, now now we learn all this stuff that we didn't know as fans at the time, which is, you know, for example, that Hogan was making such a giant chunk of uh, of the pay per view money for himself. So like, even though they would uh, they they might get a big boost in the buy rate for a pay per view and make money off of it, Hogan himself would get um, I can't remember offhand what the percentage was, but it was a very large percentage of it. So they would have to like actually twenty five percent. Yeah, it was like, yeah, twenty five twenty five percent off the top of the of the buy rate. Yeah, it was just something like some crazy number so that they would have to, you know, to, to justify even having Hogan on the show, you would have to increase the buy rate by like, you know, 30 or 35% to continue making a profit. And eventually they did hit that point. So, you know, good for them. But like, it was, uh, there was some very serious questions being asked 
uh, within the Turner organization for the first year or so of uh, Hogan's involvement, where they weren't sure if it was going to, you know, if, if it was worth continuing on to, to have him on there. And you say you tuned in when around when he lost the title. We we recently, well, I say recently, we've been doing it for a little while now, haven't we, Dean? The Nitro Watch Along series, where thanks to the network, we started from episode one in September '95, and I think we're we're at April, May. We're very close to the Scott Hall episode on we've May twenty-seventh, aren't we? Yeah, we've done thirty-three, thirty-four of them, something like that. Yeah, and it's become apparent doing that, you know, especially watching it with, that, with those fresh eyes and a little bit of retrospect it's become apparent that not only did he lose the title in late 95 but he very clearly lost his marbles I don't know if you remember much of that uh, what we call the midlife <laughs> crisis era Hulk Hogan's midlife crisis yeah where he was just yeah. desperately trying to to be the, the, the top star there were so many rows of blatantly handed out merchandise he was trouncing everyone hogging the mic and it was getting so cringe who knows what would have happened if he hadn't have agreed to turn hollywood but uh, i don't know how much of that in particular remember if you've if you've taken a year off scott and you've jumped straight back into to that where it's really starting to get stale and he's really starting to get desperate yeah well i mean i obviously i've gone back now and actually watched all the nitros from the start so yeah i can so I was hitting it week after, like, it was actually, it, it, it looks even more ridiculous in hindsight when you're watching this stuff kind of like, you know, uh, in, in rapid succession, like I was doing the reviews to catch up on it. Um, most of what, thankfully, I didn't, I, I wasn't, you know, following it weekly like that at the time, uh, because, again, we didn't have access to the product very much in, in Canada. So most of it was secondhand reading about, like, you know, things like the, the running joke with uh, using the high-heeled woman's shoe, for example, as the most deadly weapon and wrestling <laughs> and, and, yeah you know, like i said yeah yeah so yeah it's it's just just like astonishing uh astonishing lack of personal reflection on hogan's part i guess like just watching these shows now and it's like does he did we you know was he not watching his own tv programming to realize what a jackass that he was coming off as you know like it's just it's the fact that they have to, you know, forcibly hand out signs to people in the front rows to make it seem like people were cheering for him is just just absolutely crazy. Like, you know, like how, you know, uh, I don't know, just it's I don't know, just somebody who's making all that money. You'd think his goal would be to make more money and for himself. And uh, that didn't that didn't seem to be the goal that they were striving for at all at that point. I think that phrase will end up going on. The, if there was ever a WCW headstone, that would be the phrase that they'd put on there, wouldn't it? <laughs> they, the, what, they could easily make more money for all of them why are they doing this yeah exactly <laughs> why are you hitting yourself WCW why are you hitting yourself oh but um, yeah I, th- I think like for, for me personally I I think I became familiar because yeah admittedly I, I was nowhere near the the internet situation when you guys were getting into it in the mid nineties, it took me to around 2000, 2001. And I think it was around 0102. I became familiar with your work and uh, yeah, uh, for, for, for those who, who aren't overly familiar um, Scott's initial start, although I think, I think it's fair to say you've mellowed out a little bit in later years. Um, <laughs> uh, your, yes. your initial style was something we see s- certain types of writer do it more proficiently now, but at the time, especially in wrestling, there weren't many writers 
like you. I think, I think there was the Scotsman and Hyatt who, who really went heavy on the personality. And that was one of the things, for, for, for me, that was one of the things that drew me to your work was the fact that this was no regular recap going move for move, giving it a rate, or speaking of ratings, you had, um, you know, everyone uses out of 10, or they use the melts of five stars, but rather than snowflakes, sometimes you would use what, what is called the hot pokers up the ass system. Uh, did you did you want to talk us through that while I've got it up? <laughs> but uh, to be fair, I can't even lay claim to the to originate that one. I, that one I stole from, uh, from, from a writer I used to work with named Bexkaya. Who was uh, he? He had originated the system, and I kind of yeah appropriated it for for use with with WCW shows where it was just so excruciating to watch them that I just I couldn't couldn't express how how terrible a time I was having without you know <laughs> you know where where mere star ratings were just not enough. I had to actually punish the people who were putting this on my television screen for as as best I could. So each yeah, each each match and segment would earn a certain amount of hot pokers for the booker of that show to go that's up there correct, yes. <laughs> that's right and if for, there was a the booker or for the performance yeah that's yeah right. and if there was like the, a rare match that was actually watchable you'd offer them like a an ice pack or something wouldn't you yeah for a while i was offering uh, delicious cans of surge which was a, a failed <laughs> uh, soft drink and so, so they could pour those over there. I don't know if the carbonation would be painful after the, the, the burn. <laughs> the I figure that's the least of their problems at that point. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I, de- I definitely have mellowed out since, since those times. I, I go back and read a lot of that stuff. And yeah, and I feel like, man, I was I was a very angry person, it seems like. But uh, I don't know. I guess I guess marriage and a child will... Uh, will uh, change your perspective on life. But but then WCW was that sort of company that will do that to you, as we've seen with some of the pay-per-view recaps we've done. It's it's staggering just how insane they were. That being said, some of the things you were describing about the way 93 WCW was when I asked you about that, uh, is it just me or is it frightening just how much of that could be applied to today's WWE product? Oh, I know. It's and not not only that. It's it's not only terrifying. How like I mean, you know, WCW. Look at this. They were like, how much, how far ahead of the time were they were with cinematic wrestling, right? Like, yes. you know, with, with their, how close are we now to having midgets blowing up boats? Like it could happen any day now. And you know, when they brought back spin the wheel, make the deal, and NXT, and they scored a rating with it. You know, so it's like, it, it, it's astonishing. You know, WCW actually were were just ahead of their time and. Uh, and and you know who knows what they're going to dredge up from the past right now from, from WCW and they it's just it it I don't know it just it blows my mind that WWE has managed to make more money from slagging WCW than WCW ever did you know with with these ideas in the first place like you know WCW got sold off for you know whatever it was seven million dollars to Vince McMahon and he made that back in one DVD like it's just yeah it's just crazy like it's he's you know he makes more money making fun of them than 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 they ever did when you know they they were uh, on top of the wrestling world it seems like and of course there's a load of um a load of wcw related trademarks that they've recently taken out is there like the match beyond and um was it slambery or they were stopping no they were stopping AEW from taking that one out i I think that's why they did most of them it's just to stop AEW from using yeah yeah, it feels like it's a lot. A lot of what they do now is just to stop AEW from doing stuff. It feels like, but uh, thankfully AEW has not proceeded in the same direction that WCW has as far as competition goes. Mm, yeah, different. It's a different, uh, different world now, I, I guess. But um, did when um, when you'd be writing your columns with um, 
these particularly vitriolic columns of yours, did you did you get any um, any sort of negative reactions from anyone within the wrestling business or? Uh, not, I, I, not really. I wasn't really in, in big contact with a lot of people around that time. More, more of the people that I was in contact with were the kind of the people behind the scenes who could have kind of understood how terrible what was going on was, um, like, you know, like, like production people and that sort of thing who would write to me because, you know, they, cause you know, like the people on screen, obviously it was a very delicate political system that they had to navigate. And, you know, if they were, if they were writing to internet writers, then it was kind of it kind of would have put them in a bad spot. Yeah. But um, yeah, no, I, I never really got that kind of that kind of brushback from it. In fact, there was there was a couple of them where where I was I, I was almost offered a position with the the WCW home video division before the company died. Oh, uh, which wow. was you know, great great timing, I guess. Yeah, they they started to put out a couple of videotapes and they were looking for for, for my opinions as like consulting on stuff. And then the, the home video division died after like I think it was like three or four three or four releases and was gone and i never heard from them again but uh but yeah that, those those are the kind of contacts that i had with the company i see i never I, I didn't i didn't have a huge amount of contact with the people actually inside like you know on the, on the wrestling end of the company yeah and w- while we have like pressure on a lot of things about the negative sides i think it's only fair on the flip side to ask you uh off the top of your head what what, what your your favorite endearing memories of of being a WCW fan what matches moments what what things really make you smile when you think back to those crazy 10 years yeah there's there's a lot I've I mean um, especially now I've been going back on the blog recently and you know uh, redoing a lot of the old WCW shows especially like the 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 Clash of Champions shows for example just you know taking a look at uh, Sting's initial title reign uh, Mm. was one of the ones where you know he just that that poor guy just got such a such an unfair shake in, in that title reign in in 1990 you know like just injuring the knee and then you know not having any real strong challengers to defend against and you know getting stuck fighting against an evil magician and all that you know, <laughs> fun stuff right it's, you know how do you how do you how do you dig yourself out of that hole but uh yeah no i mean there's you know just just, just looking back you know they had the like they always had an excellent tag team division was one of the great things, right? You know, the, the, the Steiner brothers and, and the road warriors and doom and just all these great, they even, you know, throwing together a lot of teams, like, you know, various combinations of the horsemen, you'd get, get, get great tag team matches out of those ones. Uh, the rise of the Hollywood blondes in 1993 was a real strong point. Oh, sorry, my, my dog is attacking somebody. It sounds like saying, but, he, uh, he seems to disagree with your assertion about yeah, tag team he, wrestling. He, <laughs> boy, he really hates the Hollywood Blondes. Holy cow! <laughs> uh, yeah, no. It's, but yeah, especially in 1993, the Hollywood Blondes were definitely one of the, the highlights of the promotion overall. Mm. And that was another team that was unfairly taken from us uh, far too early, unfortunately. I think forgetting well, I mean, two that, over. <laughs> yeah, because I was going to say, legend has it. I've, the story I've always said was they were basically just put together because they didn't have any plans for either of them. They stuck them in a tag team, and and the two guys collectively made the magic happen. Yep. Yeah, that's that's WCW in a nutshell. For and <laughs> and it actually it happened a lot, which is which is crazy. There was a lot of great stuff that came out of you know, um, uh, especially later on, like in in the early '90s where you had you know the uh, uh, future Raven, you know, uh, Scotty the Body, or at the time, right? Uh, Scotty Flamingo. Scotty Flamingo. Yeah, so the, the things were like him, like, you know, him and uh, Kevin Nash and DDP would just do all this 
crazy stuff because they were given no direction by management and there was no oversight of what they were doing. So, you know, they put together these wacky boxing matches and just go out there and do all these, these crazy skits. And, you know, nobody cared because, you know, nobody was, nobody was paying any attention to them because they weren't considered to be, you know, top of the line stars or anything like that. And there's a lot of really, you know, neat stuff in there that, that you find, or like Cactus Jack, for example, where again, nobody was particularly paying any attention to him. So he went out and had all these crazy balls with, uh, with like the Abdullah the Butchers and Carrie Funks mm-hmm. of the world. And, you know, and just, just because like I say, they're the, the company was run by corporate bean counters and not actual wrestling people. It, it seemed like, so there was, uh, in a weird way, there was a lot of freedom for people to go out and just kind of do whatever they want. Um, on the flip side, if you did go over and, and you know, something uh, was a creative success, there was absolutely no guarantee it was going to translate into the company doing anything with it to draw money or do anything because, you know, they're just, while it's, you know, it's, while you can go out there and do whatever you want and, and sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't uh, at the same time, then, you know, the, you were never going to get, push past a certain point because the company just didn't care about you. And if you weren't, you know, the Hulk Hogan or the Ric Flair or whoever was the top person at the moment, then there was just no space for anybody else at the top, which was always, always one of the most frustrating things about uh, WCW, especially for, you know, people like, you know, Chris Benoit and Eddie Guerrero and people like that who are mm. trying to get to the top. Although of course, these days we have, I have a lot less sympathy for Chris Benoit's plight than I do did at the time. But, uh, but, you know, I mean, it's, it, anybody with great talent like that should have been given a chance at the top yeah. and just, just never, never was. Yeah. And I mean, we, we've seen that even with our, our nitro watch longs that, you know, we're, we're in April, May 96 time and things are obviously going to get shaken up with the arrival of the outsiders. But even just in those 30 odd episodes of nitro, we are seeing that it's a very small pool of main eventers that are on that last match. Yeah, exactly. and it's already after you know within six months it's feeling stale at times yeah for sure it's it, it got to be a very major problem yeah especially i mean that's that's obviously what led to the the nwo is just the you know when i think obviously of course uh uncensored 96 with the you know the the triple dome of Terror cage match, you know, with with Hogan and Randy Savage against eighteen people. Oh, and, don't remind you know, us. Like, we, we just call yeah, it so, the, yeah, we call it the clusterfuck cage here. Yeah, the clusterfuck <laughs> cage. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's you know, like how how is that even allowed to happen? You know, like who who puts that out? Like, there's no oversight whatsoever. It's you know, where where Paul Hogan makes the pitch. It's like okay, it's going to be me and my my other uh, aging friend against you know all of the top heels in the company at one time, and we're going to win. And you know, just and just nobody stops to say, you know, okay, hey, that's uh, how are we going to make any money off of that? You know, just yeah. And, and where and, oh, do by, we go after that? And where do we go after that? Yeah, exactly. Just yeah, these these are the questions that are not asked. And why is this person named after the you know the Jewish Holocaust in World War II? Yeah. Like, well, it's... <laughs> and, and I mean that goes back even to what you were saying in, in 1990 about Sting. We have the big pop for Sting winning the belt from Flair at the Great American Bash, but no one seems to have thought, where do we go from here? Or Starcade 97, even. Oh, yeah. The Starcade 97 was definitely the worst example of that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, we're so it's it that is kind of a problem with wrestling in general, though. Um, you can't, it's hard to even put that one on WCW because wrestling is kind of an ongoing narrative, like a soap opera, right? Like, you know, 
you know, the thing you build to the big thing and then something else happens. And kind of this, the sting story was one where it really felt like they were building to a big finish. Like they were be there. He beats Hogan. That's the end of the NWO and then close up shop and everybody goes home. But I mean, obviously at the end of the day, you have to continue on with the next storyline. And yeah, it just, it, it didn't feel like the, they, they spent all this time, you know, 18 months building up to that one big win for sting. And they just, there's just nowhere else to go from it after, after that. It's like, well, he has the rematch with Hogan, and then, and then what? Like, there's no, there's no other challengers, and you know what? And and you know, obviously it was, it, it got really bad with the NWO for that same kind of thing, uh, around that same time where where again it was like NWO wins all the time, but what's the end game? You know, like where, at what point does it stop? Like, and it just got to the point where you know you had to fracture off the NWO to to the wolf pack and the black and white and the pink and yellow and you know all the different all the different color coded combinations and then they fight each other and just who, who, what is a why why as a fan do i care which color of t-shirt that that this person is wearing you know it's that's that's what it that's what it was like for me near uh near the end at that point where yeah it's like well it's the nwo is back together again and you know so what right and once again, it's that same cluster of main eventers in the main event with each other. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yep. They didn't 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 mix anybody in. If anybody, you know, dared to to get close to there, like you know, but like even even somebody like a, a Buff Bagwell, for example, uh, who had a really really good career year in uh, 1998, uh, and then before the neck injury completely destroyed him. But like he was looking like somebody who was going to go up to the next level, and then they just had him. Had him go, ha ha, you know, I, you, you thought that I turned babyface, but I didn't. We we all fooled you, and then, and then I'm back being Scott Steiner's lackey again, and then that was it. And, and he never never got uh, close to, to that level again. And, and to, that happened to a lot of guys. Yeah, and to think, when you say Buff Bagwell in particular, I, I remember one of the things I often bring up when I bemoan the what-ifs of WCW is there was that period in the spring of 99 where they were definitely very much on the decline. WWE were back in front. But there was that little period of time, especially after Hulk suffered an injury of his own and he was off TV, which is usually synonymous with any time period that WCW shows some promises when Hogan's off, off the screen. But they, they, they really teased for a, for a little moment of time. They teased doing that old guard versus young up-and-comers, which because of the frustrations, and I remember like any 98 WCW recap that Scott would write would, would say this about the, the Benoit's, the Booker T's, the Ravens. You know, these are the guys that should be mixing with them now. And, and in 99, they really nearly... Um, uh, went for something like that where they had like the the, the Malenkos, the Benoits, the Satins complaining about uh, the way this, the situation was. And if I remember correctly, the only one who'd actually cooperate from the veteran side was, as usual, it was Ric Flair. I think he even lost. He, he got pinned by Bagwell in a main event of Nitro. It's like, wow, we're doing something here. And it led to uh, uh, the Revolution stable being formed and you had um, Flair assembling the, the jersey triad opposite them and things like that. But then it, it fizzled out and by the summer we were being main evented by Hogan and Nash again. Yep, that's... I mean, yeah, yeah that was that, that was always the way. It's, they just... The, the, I guess a lot of it was kind of um, self-fulfilling prophecy just because... You had guys like the Hogans and the Nashes who had the giant contracts. So as much as you want to move them out of the mix and, and shuffle them down, they had to keep pushing them back to the top to justify the money that they were being paid. 
Um, and yeah, it was a, it was, it was a vicious circle, unfortunately. And that was kind of, that, that's kind of why Vince McMahon, I think, uh, was so hesitant about giving out guaranteed contracts for so long is because that way then he could control the narrative all the time. Right. Like, you know, if somebody, if somebody has reached the end of the usefulness, then, you know, you, you drop them out and let them go somewhere else and, and move on to somebody else and you're not committed for long term. Uh, whereas with WCW, they really started that trend of, you know, we're, we're paying this person, you know, X million dollars a year. And so we have to use them in this high position no matter what. Yeah, whereas you think about somewhere like Japan, where you will get the the veterans will move down the card. They'll be in comedy matches, tag matches, six man tags. And I mean, I don't know what the um, what the the financials are like there, but there seems to be a much different culture of how they will you know step aside and um, gracefully move down the card. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's it's definitely a different uh, philosophy completely and. In Japan, which unfortunately, yeah, most WCW stole a lot of ideas from Japan, but that was never one of them to. You know <laughs> yes. what I mean? Yeah, and I mean, and and the other thing too is that the near the end they did try, like, you know, once they got rid of the some of the, the bigger contracts they had they had tried, but then the problem then is then you're taking these people who they've spent the last two years beating like a drum and you know saying, oh, you know, they're these guys, they're they're a bunch of losers, they're cruiserweights, they're you know they're they're not worthy of rising past the the mid card because they're not the star on the level of the Hogan's and Nashes, and then all of a sudden they needed them to to be stars on the level of these guys, and and the fans just couldn't accept it because you know WCW had already spent years treating them like like nothing, and so that's what they had it was a bunch of nothings who were in the top of the card. And yeah, that's con- what happened to the company. Yeah, they conditioned their fans to not not see those guys as as top headlines. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and I mean that's exactly the kind of thing that's happening today as well, and would be a very major problem if it wasn't for the fact that they're already WWE was already locked in for billions of dollars to these TV networks, and honestly, it doesn't matter if if it happens as long as they continue pumping out content, then everything's mm. fine. Oh yeah, that's Which what is they kind love of funny as well because I, because that's and and you know again that's another thing where WCW is actually like far ahead of the curve, right? They were the first major organization to be owned by the TV company. And uh, that's that's a whole with you know and the Nitro was the first show to receive uh, television rights fees to to make a big chunk of their money back and so as it turned out again they were they were ridiculously ahead of the curve and if they had hung around for you know uh, a little bit longer then honestly they they might have been able to stick around and uh, and been viewed as more of a trailblazer than they were I think yeah oh absolutely I mean we um, when when we did have that. Um that episode with uh, with Finley Martin, um, your your colleague of uh, from um, Inside the Ropes, of course. That we, one thing we we did talk about was how Nitro was was ahead of the curve and how it's um how it really influenced modern day wrestling television. Yeah. Um, episode seventy one, by the way, if uh, if anyone listens this wants to check that one back. You had that all primed and ready, didn't you, Dino? I was desperately searching whilst I spewed words That's out. That's why I love you. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but yeah, we talk, Yeah, we, we said about how they uh, Nitro changed the face of of the weekly television program. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, just I mean, going back now and watching these shows, you can just see how dramatically different uh, the production quality is. Uh, if if you watch like for example, late 1995, the introduction of Nitro and you know, 
WWF Raw kind of limping to uh, uh, to a finish at the end of the year, and it's just and it's uh, it's just night and day. Like you know, Nitro has a slick production value, and it looks like it was produced by a TV company, uh, whereas uh, the, the WWF shows were just you know using the same formula that they had had for the past three or four years. And it's really it's really quite astonishing because if you go back, you know, and obviously Vince McMahon in the 80s was the one who overhauled the whole presentation of uh, wrestling on TV in the first place was Saturday Night's main event and his uh, his work with NBC and Dick Ebersol at the time, taking it from, you know, the, the cliched, you know, smoky arenas and, and and small dingy halls and that sort of stuff and taking these huge taping weekly TV in these huge arenas with, you know, the arena lit up like a Christmas tree and and it was a total... Uh, a, a total departure and uh as you, you know as vince gets older later on like you know you can see him kind of losing that same drive and it really took wcw doing those steps with nitro to really kind of give him the kick in the ass that he needed to to freshen up his own product and, and make it to look cutting edge um and unfortunately at that point then at the same time wcw couldn't keep up with that you know their idea of cutting edge was that ridiculous uh, wcw logo that you know looked like it was a, a throwing star that was cut in half or something like that like you know that was their idea of freshening up the product right and it's like well let's push hulk hogan even harder that'll that'll get the kids to come back and watch our tv programming again right yeah you, you mentioned about uh those taking too long and it being too late to create new stars and you're absolutely right but uh, one of the wrestlers that very nearly broke that trend until a, a certain uh, late WCW writer put pay to that bro was uh, Canada's own Lance Storm. Because when he arrived from ECW, he was very quickly given the star treatment. He was, uh, you know, I think he had a little tag team with Billy Kidman for five minutes. And then they quickly changed him around, made him the super serious, like deadpan heel. He basically gobbled up all the secondary titles he had like a a great nitro match with booker t for the world title it was crazy just seeing a booker t versus lance storm world title match at that point alone and you know yeah. he, he had his own faction it was all going until until the, the the situation got ridiculous with some of the writing but not just the writing was also the story storm himself shared who i'm sure you're also familiar with uh, about when they did the pay-per-view up in Canada. And uh, I think he said they, they ran a print of about 150 Lance Storm t-shirts for a trip to Canada. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, I know, it's just, yeah, I know that was another another because WCW moment. So that, that whole Canadian pay-per-view was, run was just astonishing. And they just had, oh, yeah, they, they had no idea how to use any of the people and, I think the actually the, the even worse one was the the show that they did in Toronto later on, which was um, Mayhem, I think it was, um, where they were they they just didn't realize like the right people like the the Lance Storm show was astonishing on its own as well just because they 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 I believe they, they brought in Bret Hart and ended up uh, they teased using Bret Hart in a major role and ended up using I think it was Jacques Rougeau instead for that show just like all kinds of like you know like like crazy decisions that that had no bearing on uh on what anybody in canada actually wanted to see out of it because uh, later on they had they uh, like kurt hennig and scott hall for example were the ones who were getting the really big reactions in canada because you know the canadians especially in toronto and major centers like that still associated with them with 
with with WWF, and yeah. uh, you know we were chanting for you know Mr. Perfect or or Razor Ramon and 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 that kind of thing, and just WCW just had no no comprehension of that of you know like the of, of what to do with them and you know and just figure well we'll we'll just go out there and we'll just we'll just beat these guys in Canada where they're giant baby faces and could actually you know be something that could draw some money there and just yeah that. That whole that whole trip was a disaster, and yeah, especially Lynn, and yeah, Landstorm in particular. That uh, it was actually his his push wasn't even you know intended to to be a push. It was just like it was a bet between two of the the bookers basically. Where I think it was I think it was Johnny Ace actually who was who was behind him. Where basically basically they they wanted to bring Landstorm in as an underneath job guy, and and Johnny Ace said, well you know give me uh you know give me give me give me two weeks to to push him, I'll turn him into the next star. And then he he got that couple of weeks, and Lance Storm became a big star. And then they had had enough of him, and and cut the push right back down again. So that's kind of yeah. And Johnny Ace, you mentioned, he he was the guy who was in charge of most of the creative when WCW, at the point where everyone was assuming they were going to be sold to maybe to WWE, maybe elsewhere. But it looked like their their days were numbered, late two thousand, early two thousand and one, because. They've, they've all but given up. WCW have basically just gone Johnny Ace. And I think we had Dave Penzer do an interview where he said he was assisting Johnny Ace. So there was a few, there was a few others as well getting involved. And they said, just, just write the show while we try and find a new buyer. And it, over the course of six months, they actually, it wasn't amazing as we always stress. It wasn't the, the best TV anywhere, but it was, it was extremely watchable. In those in those last dying months of WCW, they they actually put forth a uh, a bit more of a, a, a solid show that those of us who were unfortunate enough to to watch through like things falling <laughs> apart after the New World Order and then how bad things got in night nine two thousand, we actually got a little a little cherry at the end of there with <laughs> with you know what could have been with the Chavo Guerreros and the Shane Helms and you know some decent storylines and just just solid wrestling I thought. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, guys like Three Count and the Young Dragons, and I kind of think at the end, you know, they had a very young AJ Styles uh, yeah. under contract, and yep, let him go and didn't do anything. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, the things were there, and you know, that was one where uh, by that time, then yeah, exactly, they were they're putting a lot of the guys on the shelf who didn't want to be around there anymore, like your Hogan's and you know your Goldbergs, and Eric Bischoff had a pretty solid plan, I think, to kind of reboot the company again and. Bring in Rob Van Dam was going to be the top star that he wanted to to focus on. So yeah, there was there was some good ideas there for sure. But uh, you know, I mean, ultimately it was uh, live by the network and die by the network. And they could have kept going because they had the ratings for it, but the network just decided to go in another direction, and that was it. And pulled the plug on it. And once once they didn't have TV, then they didn't have any value as a promotion anymore. Yeah, I always find it quite funny that that, that was the call of uh, Jamie Kellner, wasn't it? Uh, That's right. And yeah. he he also got. Am I right in reading that he he was also the man responsible for getting rid of the 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 famous cartoon show Animaniacs, and right now. No. Uh, I, I think I so. Yeah, I, I stand to be corrected, but I'm, I'm also and he that was also his call. And it's just funny in 2020 we now have weekly wrestling back on uh, on TNT and Animaniacs yeah, right. is coming back. Is it? Yeah. Oh, fantastic! It sure is. Yeah. It's it's yeah. funny. Oh, it's funny how it's funny how the world works. But another one I went to add about those those uh, wrestlers that are, that are looking good later in WCW. My personal favorite of all of that, 
was you had the Vince Russo had this this group called the Natural Born Thrillers, where he basically took all these green six foot tall power plant guys. He wanted to show everyone, look, I'm going to put new stars on the TV not the old fogies you're sick of. And he put all these guys on there way too soon and had, had them serve as job boys, almost like the, the in, in a similar vein to the Spirit Squad and, and I suppose you could say Retribution now, really. But um, then in the Johnny Ace era, they had O'Hare and Palumbo do a few tag team matches together and within five minutes, they've exploded as like the, the hot new duo of, of 2001 and they're, they're looking great and their moves are getting over and, and guys like DDP and Lex Luger and Bagwell were, for whatever reasons, are, are actually wrestling them and losing to them. Then suddenly you had a you had a, a top tag team on your hands. Yeah, although in the case of the, the, the Luger and Bagwell losing them, that was a very notable case where it was infamous. Uh, yeah, where, where they where they they lost them in about ten seconds, so it it meant absolutely nothing, and they treated it as a joke, which was kind of a problem running through WCW with, especially for they would ask Scott Hall to do it as well, and he was he was another one really bad for it, where he would he would uh, make I'm using air quotes here, you can't see, we're doing audio, but uh, where he would lose to somebody like Hector Garza. Uh, you know, and, and then just get right back up and beat him up immediately. So it was a completely meaningless loss. Chris Jericho or, as know, well. Chris Jericho as yeah. well. Yeah, like like those kind of things. You know, it was it was it was so stupid that you might as well have not done it at all, basically. And it was, but again, like near the end there, that was again kind of part of the problem where they were they brought in all these young guys too soon, but they were, but by then the top stars were gone, so there was really nobody to turn them into into bigger stars. So they were just kind of all working with each other and uh it was you know it was okay from a certain certain extent but you just you, you can only go so far with it right like you just yeah you're not going to turn anybody into top level star by having them work with against you know david flair and crowbar or whatever the, <laughs> you know, the thing to, yeah it's, it's, i suppose if you if you had the big stars around still they wouldn't want you to lose for them anyway so you well exactly yeah i know that's what i mean it's a whole yeah, yeah. It's, it's 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 a it's a tough one to to find a way out of unfortunately it's, it's funny you mention that because um i think a lot of people in agreement about that luger bagwell O'Hare, palumbo thing i think we covered we did cover the final pay-per-view already didn't we we could we yeah. cover the pay-per-views in a completely erratic order for those who are not sure uh we just do it on a whimsy or based on what a guest wants to cover. And I think the time we we ended up doing Greed, the final WCW pay-per-view, a lot of people, uh, that when we looked up the research, uh, everyone was in agreement that like Luger and Bagwell were throwing their toys out the pram. Now, I have struggled since then to... to find this again but i'm pretty if i if i really put my head to it i I probably could find it somewhere but i'm pretty sure i read up about a a review of of a shoot interview that lex luger himself did some time ago where he actually maintains that he and bagwell were had completely good intentions in that in that they uh, apparently bagwell you know, he he found out they were going to lose the match, and he was like, "Can we keep it short then?" So I does you know, so I so I don't have to work a lot. And Luger was like, "Well, if 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 you're gonna get squashed, then we'll both get squashed, and they can pin us both, and uh, and it will help them." And I, I'm I'm pretty sure I read that. So and John, when you find something, you're like, "I'm definitely read that somewhere," but then it uh then it kind of washes away, and you struggle to back it up. But but to even to to that day, he was he was maintaining that they 
they they had good intentions there. It's just a shame we never got to see the follow up because there were a lot of guys who who would have been interesting to watch, even though they didn't get that, as you guys said, the the passing of the torch that should have happened in 98, 99, 2000, 2001. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that, uh, incidentally, that, uh, that episode, Greed, we, we did all the way back in um, 2018, episode 7, which, if memory serves me right, is the first episode we recorded where the sound didn't, or the audio didn't sound like we were locked in the toilet. Yeah, we were learning with the technological yeah. aspect, but we got the hang of it, you know, with with sound flower and things like that, and we're getting better allegedly. But uh, yeah, we were doing like a, a like potted history, weren't we? Before we Ooh. actually managed to attract guests on the show, we would uh, we, we we went from Starcade '97, the show where they pulled the gate of so and so million up to and we just did the the big highlights of their decline up till greed where they were not long after they were sold for less money than that gate at Stargate 97. But but you know what interests me is that just looking over especially our early episodes where we've had guests on and we've said to them you know choose any pay-per-view and and obviously you know at that that point you've got the entire range of WCW pay-per-views and the ones that were chosen early were generally speaking the terrible ones we had the the uncensored clusterfuck cage match we had um halloween havoc 91 with the um the chamber of horrors match and, and we had you know we had these these awful shows but they clearly stuck in people's memories and i i, I still to this day I, I don't know what you guys think but I, I still to this day don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing well here's here's I, a good point sorry scott here's a good point to really hammer that home we've just had all the clamor for halloween havoc to come back it's been going on for ages uh wwe delivered fans rejoiced we got spin the wheel make the deal you know all, all the gimmickry halloween havoc is also by far our most requested show on the podcast Ooh. we've almost run out of halloween havocs to recap because everyone always asks them i challenge both of you to name one really good halloween havoc pay-per-view Oh, I, I, Halloween Havoc 98 was actually a really good show. In fact, I, I recall that one. Uh, the, the one with uh, DDP and Goldberg in the main event. Now, granted, uh, Hogan yes. Warrior, but, but I mean, you know, Granite Hogan and Warrior were there. But I mean, you know, there's, got to cut it a little bit of slack. But I mean, overall, that was, I thought that was Halloween Havoc was, was a solid show that year. I would, uh, I would say, and actually, Halloween Havoc 91, I just watched, uh, just redid for the blog very recently, and that one aged. Uh, I would say I wouldn't say it was a good show, but it was a very fun show. Uh, skip the opener, the maybe. And, <laughs> yeah, skip the opener exactly. Yeah, we could you know we could skip. You could say that for a lot of the stuff, but uh, but yeah, no, I mean the Halloween Havoc '91 had the debut of Rick Rude with the Dangerous Alliance and all of that fun stuff, and uh, a surprisingly really good Lex Luger, Ron Simmons, two out of three falls main event for the world title so i would uh, i would defend that one as well i feel like yeah fair enough i, I mean like the, obviously 98 had its own challenges with that with cutting off before ddp goldberg hogan way as you said uh so so there were elements that were good and some were fast cool but it just it it it, it amazed me when they announced halloween havoc to think back to a lot of those Halloween Havoc shows were dismal. I think the the, the examples we are thinking of here that, that had enough redeeming qualities also had things like Hogan Warrior and the Chamber of 
horrors. There was just so much bad that outweighed the good over the grand scale of the Halloween Havoc franchise. And yet it just brings back all these wonderful nostalgic memories. It's it's amazing how a bit of festive gimmickry can do that to you. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean that's that's what wrestling's built on, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. That's that that I've always <laughs> yes. said wrestling is the snake that eats its own tail, right? Like you have all this stuff where people are slagging WCW for years and years, and then WWE turns around and they're like, like, oh hey, we're gonna put out this Halloween Havoc special with a big stupid spinning wheel with the dumb gimmick matches on it, and then they suddenly score a huge rating on it. You know, like it's just there's no accounting for for nostalgia, honestly. Yeah, and they brought back Starcade a few years ago. And they brought back Starcade. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Not in really great form, but, you know, hey, they, they brought it back and they're trying to make some money off of it. So, you know, yeah, good for them. I am optimistic about another thing they've brought back is War Games, obviously, and I'm very optimistic about what is surely going to be the next installment of that because I think anyone who's been watching NXT can see where this is going. I think that one's going to be a belter. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking yeah, forward absolutely. to that. Yeah, I mean, they've, they've done some really great War Games matches recently as well after WCW managed to completely kill it at the end. So, I mean, all, it, it seems like Triple H is more of a, a WCW historian than anybody who was working for the company at the time ever was. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So what, what would you say is your favorite era of WCW? Uh... I, I'm very partial to the very early 90s. Like, the Dangerous Alliance was, like, one of the all-time greatest wrestling storylines, I think, that, that I've ever seen. So I'd, I'd say probably in that, uh, yeah, like, the, the late 91 up to early 92 in there. I, I wasn't a big fan of Bill Watts once he took over, but, uh, I mean, you know, everything building up to the War Games match with the, with the Dangerous Alliance against Sting Squadron, I think, was... Some, some pretty fantastic stuff in retrospect. Best war games ever. Oh yeah, for sure. Maybe best WCW match ever. It's up there, isn't it? That was amazing. There is a, there is a strong argument to be made that it was the best WCW match ever. Absolutely. Yeah, we covered that very early on as well, didn't we? Dean? We that was we one of the matches we yeah. loved. We just we we spent about half an hour on that match alone. We just went into so such detail, didn't we? Of every, of every little psychological nook and cranny. It was that was that was our for all the times we love to to slate the the silliness of WCW. We do enjoy that that hypothetical Christmas it throws us with a with a good match like that. And that, that, that's pretty much your writing in a nutshell as well, isn't it, Scott? Having the the, yeah. the ridiculous and the sublime come together oh yeah absolutely i mean i'm i i'm i've never been afraid of recapping terrible pay-per-views i mean you know bring it on it's it <laughs> i'm it's you know it gives me more material to work with typically uh what i what i don't like is boring pay-per-views that's that's really bad like the like boring wcw is is the worst one like let's say when you get into the bill watts era when you're doing 30 minute mat wrestling matches with the steiner brothers against steve williams and terry gordy and and that sort of thing it's like i have nothing to work with there but like you know you know, bring on the, the giant cage with the electric chair in the middle of the, the switch that doesn't work. And, <laughs> where no one's got any room to work in, yeah. Where no one's got any room to work, and, you know, like Barry Windham's supposed to be there, but he decides not to be there, so, you know, the, they bring in Ellie Conte instead or something, and just, you know, it, you know, it, it's fine. I can work with that. I, that gives me material to, to use for years, right? So, yeah. <laughs> and incidentally, we'd be, we'd be doing uh, WrestleWorld 92 a disservice if we didn't also mention the Steiner brothers beating the ever-loving shit out of poor Takayuki <laughs> Izuka in that match. Oh, poor Izuka. I know. Every time I watch that match, I'm just... Uh, and, you know, and I've been doing WWF Superstars from 93 
as well on an ongoing basis now than they put those up on the WWE Network. And you just watch these poor jobbers just getting the piss beaten out of them by Steiners week after week. It's just, how are they, how, you know, like, how is anybody letting them continue on with this stuff? Like, they're dropping guys right on their head on, on these shows and just, it's just, oh, just, just astonishing that none of the agents, like, maybe stopped to have a word with them afterwards and was, was like, you know, uh, you know, that, that that poor man's got a got a family and he needs to go home and uh, and feed his children and you know you're if you break his neck then it's going to make it hard. But <laughs> oh. oh man! Although I I always have a, a, a I say a fond memory a memory of um a doom squash match that was uh, aired on um on British TV one time where um all I remember was Ron, Ron Simmons bounces the jobber off the ropes and, and whatever move he's supposed to take, he the, the Ron Simmons is going for one move and the, the jobber is is thinking he's going for a totally different move and just ends up making this look ridiculous by kind of falling in the wrong way. And Ron Simmons just can't hide his absolute disgust, picks the guy up and just gives him a the most brutal short clothesline you'll ever see in your life. Just to teach, to teach this poor guy a lesson, and uh, yeah, you gotta feel sorry for him. And then, of course, you had Vader breaking that bloke's back as well. Oh, that's right. Yeah, poor Joe Thurman. Absolutely, I know. Joe Thurman, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah, and then Vader dropping Cactus Jack on his head on the concrete, and yeah, that was an astonishing time because that was that was the uh, during the you know the very early times of the internet, and we actually had people at RSVW who were. Who, who did some detective work and actually found uh, Mick Foley's home address and like and actually tracked him down and and called him to make sure that he was okay and you know oh, Mick wow. of course was, was astonished was was very astonished by that but yes he was you know that was that that was uh, that was yeah that, that was the wild west times and, <laughs> yeah <laughs> for, fortunately people online are much more sane now I'm pleased yeah, to report. <laughs> <laughs> yeah nothing to worry about nowadays. Oh man, that's that's amazing. Well, yeah, you, you know, we we always say that for all the all the bad times and all the crazy times, that the, you know, the reason that that we do this podcast, and I'm I'm sure the reason you wrote about WCW as well, is that at the end of the day, we we had we had a, a love for this crazy promotion and the fact that it provided a, a viable alternative to the WWF. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the thing, no matter how terrible they were, it was always something where, you know, where it gave Vince McMahon, uh, an opponent to, to go after. And, you know, it's to a certain degree, we've had that with AEW now, but he's, he's so out of touch now that it's, you know, it's, it, it doesn't even feel like he's letting it affect the, the, the main product anymore. Uh, that kind of competition. Cause he has so much money that he doesn't even have to worry about having competition at this point, honestly, but yeah, WCW served a valuable purpose to the wrestling world for, for many many years, uh, even though it was hard to discern sometimes, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I would I would have been very sad if they had gone away sooner than they did. That's for sure. And I was very sad when they when they left too. Uh, you know, I mean, mm. as, as bad as look how bad the WWE got uh, almost immediately after after they were gone and Vince didn't have that competition to Absolutely. push them further anymore. Absolutely, yeah, you can you can see throughout history that when yeah when vince has got his back to the wall that's when he produces some some great television yeah absolutely yep listen up slap nuts that's right this is jeff jarrett the chosen one and you're listening to because wcw now choke on that 
Okay, Scott, before we uh, we let you go, one thing we always like to do with our guests is to ask them to pick a WCW entrance theme. So um, I believe that you have uh, you have given uh, uh, your choice to Liam. So Liam, are you ready at, the, at your end? I am extremely ready. Okay, well, if you can press play, and then uh, we'll we'll ask Scott to uh, tell us why he's chosen this one. So this will be, if, if I'm, unless I'm very much mistaken, this is the the first theme tune in W7 for Rick Reed, is it not? Yeah, that's, uh, that's like I was, I was seeing with my, we talked about Halloween Havoc 91, Rude coming in was, yeah, that was a, that was an atomic bomb basically in, in, in the wrestling world at that time. Because uh, you know, Rick Rude was a guy who was a top level WWF star. Uh, yeah. coming over to, to WCW. That's, that's the kind of thing we hadn't, that hadn't really been seen yet in the kind of in the war that they were building up there, right? So, yeah, and he, and he came in there, and that was that was a killer theme that they had for him, right? Like the, they had the one that slammed down later on, uh, Simply Ravishing. You know, that was a little too on the nose when they actually described the character and how he loves women and like that. But the, the initial one, yeah, like that was a, it was a rocket song. Like, you know, you could get, you know, I mean, if you know the original song, Black Cat, it was kind of very similar to what his... Yeah character was there right so you kind of knew what you were getting into but it was just it was very suitable for him like you knew this was somebody who was a badass and who was who was you know going to come out and beat people up and uh it was just it was a great choice it was uh i was actually quite sad now well i'm pretty sad now that everything gets purged off the network unfortunately <laughs> so now we get like generic rock music for for pretty much everybody that's uh you know whatever they can find that's in the public domain to replace it but yeah. uh but yeah, it was it was it was a tremendous entrance theme. I think one of the best ones that WCW had come up with. Because I mean, he had such distinctive music in the WWF. Oh yeah. And, um, yeah, you think about the the similarity between um, like Hulk Hogan's um, theme tune in the WWF and American Made in WCW, where this is very different. But it's they've still managed. Yeah, they've managed to keep that that feel that rick rude feel but probably be a, a bit less comedic and a bit more badass as you say oh yeah exactly there's no comedy involved there like this is this is somebody who's he came out and he said i'm going to beat sting for the u.s title and he did it within like two weeks and yeah he's he was he was not a person to be messed with anymore mm. and 
I keep saying this, Liam. One day we will start getting onto the Clash of the Champions because that Clash of the Champions 17 with the the show long storyline between Rick Rude and and Sting is is just one of my favourite WCW moments ever. Such a good story. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. And um, yeah, do you know what we have we have discussed how how to start doing clashes because through all these episodes, all these pay per views, we haven't done a clash yet. And one of the ideas Dean and I were was bouncing about is maybe we do like a like a blind draw of like thirty five numbers, uh, clashes one to thirty five, and we just do them like completely at random when it's time for a clash. But you know what? The more I think about when you guys say about Sting and Rick Rude, yeah, maybe we should just start by deliberately doing that, which for me is probably the best clash. I know some of the clashes had great matches, but yeah, from a from a from a top to bottom show it was just compelling. And I believe over here in the UK they 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 aired it in the form of of worldwide episodes, which was which was our our drip feed of WCW at the time. Because I had a VHS that a friend had recorded for me, because I was only like six or seven at the time, and that was how I watched this clash. So they they I think they managed to stretch it into a, like a two parter of of worldwides or something like that. But oh, but yeah, okay. it was absolutely amazing. I I I loved the Slam Jam Recruit theme as well. It's pretty cool. You know, some of the lyrics were a bit weird, like abs all in a row. Well, of course they fucking are but um <laughs> but but yeah the, this this initial one as you guys said it's bang on the money uh those though had such a knack they would shamelessly rip off real music but they still did it in such a way that and we said this before didn't we on the rj Singh episode they they still did it most of the time in such a way that that fit the the character nicely and guys yeah. like jimmy hart obviously were later instrumental in that but even in the early 90s uh they were doing it with, with ones like this this is a, this is a great theme it works a treat it's it's a bit generic healy but it just fits rick rude to a t and in this day and age early 90s you know generic rock themes were were most of the order so to manage yes. to put so much personality into it is is a bit of an achievement mm. absolutely yeah Great choice. Thank you very much, Scott. Well, that brings us to uh, to the end of this uh, special episode of Because WCW. Scott, thank you so much for taking the time out to, to join us. Um, if people want to get hold of you on social media, how can they reach you? Oh, on social media, I am available on Twitter at RSPWFAQ. Uh, you can reach me at blogofdoom.com as well. Uh, I also do have a Twitter at, at blogofdoom, but it's not usually updated. Uh, the, the RSPWFAQ one is normally where you can reach me. And uh, yeah, I have, I have a page on Facebook as well. You can look me up there for the blog of doom if you want. And uh, I think I have an Instagram. I can't really remember. I, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not much into the social media like the kids are, but, uh, you know. My my daughter is big on TikTok and that kind of stuff, so she can she can probably figure it out for me at some point. <laughs> Thank you ever so much, and um, we will be back with uh, another. We've got, we got to watch. No, we've got a pay per view review coming up, I believe, Liam. We um we should do lots of both. We, yes, we? well, I love all, it. After all, as we have said, we are in another lockdown here in England, which therefore means it is once again a golden age for podcasting. Indeed. So. On behalf of Liam Hat, this has been the Twisted Genius saying thanks for listening and we'll see you ringside.